Hey, as we begin this morning, let's uh, pray uh, for our country and for uh, our communities in this, what could be a very tumultuous week. Uh, Father, we, we just lift up our country to you right now. We lift up uh, our people, our communities um, who are struggling and hurting. Um, and Lord, we pray for you to uh, protect us through this week. We pray um, for our police officers that you protect them. We pray for protesters that you protect them. We pray uh, for our government officials that you protect them. Uh, but Lord, we pray that through this week you do something more than just protect. We pray that you just stir within our hearts a deeper longing for you. A recognition, Lord, that, that uh, countries come and go. Countries, um, that countries ultimately, as great as our country is, we don't have the answers that, that you have, Lord. That you are the one who brings eternal life. And so we pray, Lord, for in the midst of all this searching, Lord, we pray that people would turn towards you. Um, that you would just stir a great work in our nation by, by turning people's hearts towards you uh, and helping us to understand um, that, that you are the answer. And Lord, as your people, as your bride, we pray that we would shine through this time, that we would show love and compassion, and that we would extend hope to those who are in hopeless situations. Guide us now in Christ's name. Amen. So whenever Kristen and I go to weddings, there's always this moment when um, she starts elbowing me, right when the groom is, excuse me, right when the bride is getting ready to come down the aisle, and she starts elbowing me, and she always says the same thing. She always says, watch the groom, watch the groom, watch the groom, keep your eyes on the groom. And it's always a little bit bizarre to me because I'm like, you know, if I do that, I'd be like, watch the bride, watch the bride. Suddenly I'd be all some kind of pervert or something, but she can get away with that. Uh, she, she wants me to look at the groom because of the look that is on the groom's face the moment he sees his bride for the first time. And I've started doing that. Even when I'm conducting the weddings, I end up looking at the groom rather than at the bride as they're coming down. Everybody's turned and looking at the bride. But, but what if we, we turned and looked at the groom and saw the expression on his face? Because as beautiful as the bride is, the expression on the groom's face says it all. And I suspect that just maybe Kristen does that because she remembers the look that she saw on my face 15 years ago when she came down the aisle all dressed in white and looking smoking hot. She remembers the look that I saw knowing that I had definitely outpunted my coverage. She knows what it's like to see the look on the face of the groom. As we wrap up the book of Revelation the next couple of weeks, we look today to the groom. We've seen a lot of different titles for Jesus that are used, but today, rather than it just being a warrior or something else, we see this warrior groom, this, these two marriage passages with a war that happens in between. And we ask ourselves the question, what can we learn about the bride and the groom that we see here? Now, fellas, I'm going to give you a little bit of, a, of, of just a clarification today because it says in the Bible that the church is the bride of Christ. That might make some of you a little bit uncomfortable, okay? It does not mean that we have to wear dresses, gentlemen, or anything like that. 
But I give you plenty of sports illustrations throughout the week to make it on week in, week out. So this one's for the ladies, okay? So just bear with me. But what we saw last week is we saw this image of Babylon. This image of that fallen city, which, which really was Rome in their culture, but where we have to look inwardly and say, well, how are we like Babylon? How are we like what was described in the Bible as a prostitute there? How are we? And what we saw is that there's a contrast between Babylon and the bride, just as there is a contrast between Satan and Christ. Remember, Satan, what does he do to Babylon? He ultimately devours her. He, he destroys her, whereas God restores us. So here's what we see here. Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Now, as we get started, I, I want to point out to us just one thing that's important for us to remember. Because in our culture, we talk a lot about going to heaven when we die. But we talk very little about being resurrected when Christ returns. And I just, just want to remind you that the idea of going to heaven when you die, which yes, we believe that your spirit goes to be in the presence of God when you die, but that's not our final hope. That was for Plato, what Plato said, but it doesn't have anything to do with the, necessarily with, with the Bible. The Bible has its own theme of, yes, you're at rest with God until he returns, but our hope is not, our hope is not just your spirit goes, your hope is that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so you and I will be raised from the dead when Christ returns. It's a full bodily resurrection. We make it into that kind of like this cheap social security kind of retirement. Well, like, well, it's better than nothing. Whereas, no, this is what every, all of creation has been longing for. The day when heaven and earth are one, when God and his people are one, and he will live with them, and he will be our God forever and ever. So on that note, Revelation 19.1, it says, After this, after everything that happened with Babylon, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. Now, this is a new word in the book of Revelation. We've heard lots of words for praise before, but what we see here is that this is the first time that the word hallelujah is used. And this is a sign to us because in the book of Psalms, while the word hallelujah is used several times in the book of Psalms, it really gets intense in Psalms 146 to 150, which is the end of the book in five Psalms that are known as the hallelujah Psalms. Okay, And so this is a sign to us that we are nearing the end of the book. Things are about to conclude. It says, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are just and true. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke goes from her up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, who you fear him, small and great. Now, I know this might seem weird, rejoicing over the destruction of Babylon. But remember, Babylon was known uh, in that passage to have corrupted the people around her. So what this is, is it's rejoicing over God's good 
and just judgments that he is bringing. Much like America rejoiced when World War II was over because of what happened, Germany and Japan, who were obviously evil powers, were brought to their knees through that process. So we rejoice because God is finally bringing justice to earth. And when we understand this, I think it's, it's so important because there's so much oppression that goes on around the world. And how do you bring justice to someone who was murdered? How do you bring justice to a little child who was harmed by someone doing something awful to them? How do you bring justice in any one of those situations to someone whose livelihood has been destroyed? And the answer is, is that any form of earthly justice, while it's good, it's not enough. But when Jesus returns, the justice He brings will be enough forever and ever. And those who have lost will somehow gain back. I am confident of His good and just judgment. But the rejoicing doesn't end there. In verse 6 it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. That's us. That's the church. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So first, what do we see about the bride? First, we see that the bride has made herself ready by putting on the pure clothes given by God for her to wear. And we know that this is true of us as well. We do not clean ourselves up for God. God gives us the purity we deserve. We would not be a bride who could wear white on our own. But Jesus has given us that purity through His death and resurrection. By His blood, we have been made holy and pure. And now it's for us to put on those clothes. And so I ask you, is the white that you've been given to wear hanging in your closet like an old suit or dress that needs to go to the Salvation Army, or are you wearing that white daily? Are you putting on the salvation that God has given to you? Secondly, we see about the bride that she has endured and as a result is more beautiful and pure. She has endured. Throughout the book of Revelation, we see the suffering of Christians over and over and over again. And you would think as a result of all that suffering, that the bride would not be all that beautiful. But what we see is the opposite is true. Because of her suffering, she is even more beautiful. Because of her endurance, God has made her even better than what she could ever have made herself on her own. Andrew Peterson, the songwriter of Is He Worthy, which we've sung here, you've probably heard on the radio, also has a best-selling children's book series called The Wingfeather Saga. And it's best described as Harry Potter in style, yet with an explicitly Christian worldview. It's excellent books. My son's read all of them. My wife's read all of them. I'm a little further behind. I'm just on book two. 
But the, the key character in the story is a boy named Janner. And in an interview, Peterson says that he realized that in order to get Janner as this young boy to become the hero by the end of book four, in order for him to develop his character that much, he only had one option, and that was to utterly destroy Janner's life. Now, I don't like to hear that. I like to hear things like, you know, Jeremiah 29, where it talks about, for I know the plans for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you a hope and a future. But what we don't realize is that when, when Jeremiah spoke those words, those people were getting ready to enter into 70 years of exile. The reality is, is that God might need to wreck your life. I know we like to hear God has a wonderful plan for your life. Let me tell you, God does have a wonderful plan for your life. It's not to give you everything you want. It's to help you to become the person He longs for you to be. And sometimes our lives have to be utterly ruined from a human perspective before we see the resurrection starting to shine through. But in the end, you will not be bitter you will be thankful that God did what He did. The bride was pure through Christ and she endured. And then here we see the attention turned to the groom. What do we learn about the groom? Well, in verse 11, we see this warrior groom make his first appearance. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse the one sitting on it, who is Jesus, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. The first thing we see about the groom is that he is faithful and true. Now, ladies, if you've got a date and your girlfriends start asking you, tell me about him, tell me about him, my guess is, is if you said, well, he is faithful and true. My guess is, is they'd start asking, like, so what's wrong with the guy? Like, what's, what, what's wrong with his appearance that that's the first thing you mentioned? That's just being honest, right? Like, you know, if, 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 they, if you said, you know, well, he's tall, dark, and handsome. Well, that's what you lead with. Faithful and true. We, they worry about that stuff down the road. But let's be honest, after even three or four months of marriage, all of a sudden, faithful and true is really what matters, isn't it? You know, and that's the same thing with us. We can be so deceived by the glamoring images of this world that we forget that what we really need more than anything else is a faithful and true God. And so the groom is faithful and true. And then we have this war scene, which I'm not going to get into because ultimately God utterly destroys Satan. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty quick picture, really. It doesn't take long. We talked about that more last week. But what we see here, we're going to jump forward to chapter 21 to this other bookend of this, of this wedding scene. And in chapter, verse, chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea in the book of Revelation, uh, that's, where the, that's where the great dragon lived at. Remember back on Christmas Eve? And then also John was on an island. John was like literally on an island prison separated from where he wanted to be. By what? The sea. 
And so this is an image of separation and of evil here. And what he's saying is there's going to be no more separation here. It says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, or look, the dwelling place of God is with man. Look at the groom. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. The second thing we see about the groom is that he will dwell with us. This is pointing us back to the Garden of Eden, where, of course, we saw that God walked with Adam and Eve until they sinned. And what we're seeing here is that their sin didn't destroy God's purpose. We'll look more at this next week, but the idea here is that God, God's purpose is not thwarted by us. He ultimately will bring that same purpose around, and He will walk with us once again. He will dwell with us. And then maybe one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, verse 4. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes. The same hand that wiped his own tears away from his eyes at Lazarus' death will wipe the tears away from your eyes and mine when we are resurrected, when we see him as he truly is. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. No more. I can't imagine being in Isaiah or John's shoes when they were trying to write their great prophecies describing what the world will be like when Christ returns. And rather than trying to describe all the positives, they resort to painting a word picture of all the negatives that will be no more. The sound of weeping will be heard no more. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days. They will not labor in vain. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. I got to thinking there's a lot of words that are simply going to be obsolete. After several years of the new heavens and the new earth, maybe someone will have to publish a dictionary of all the words that we have forgotten. The words that are simply no longer necessary like war and disease and poverty. When I first had this thought several years ago, I posted a question on Facebook about which words people would like to have made, be made obsolete. And interestingly enough, the first two posts were war and PMS. It got me thinking, maybe PMS is the cause of all war. Or maybe war is just man's version of PMS. This year when I posted the question again, I was expecting COVID to be the number one response. But in over 80 comments, only one had to do with COVID, while over half dealt with either mental health or division. Anyway, I wound up putting together a list of words, abbreviations and phrases that we simply won't need anymore when Christ returns and heals our world. Here we are. I suppose what comes to mind immediately is our health. So how about dealing away with STD and HIV, IV and ICU, MS and ALS, ADHD and AIDS, and COVID-19 will be nothing but a distant memory. 
And those are just the abbreviations. How about not needing words for Alzheimer's and arthritis, appendicitis and autism, chickenpox and cholera, chlamydia and diarrhea, herpes and Huntington's, hepatitis and hemorrhoids, leukemia and learning disabilities, malaria, measles and mumps, no more immunizations, no more shots, no more turn your head and cough, no more meningitis or migraines, rabies or scabies, tuberculosis or typhoid, and there will be no more sniffing, sneezing, coughing, aching, stuffy head fever, and you can finally rest medicine. It'll be a lot easier to describe our religious faith as well as we won't be Anglican or Apostolic, Baptist or Catholic or Charismatic, Episcopal or Evangelical, Presbyterian or Pentecostal, Fundamental or Liberal, and no, we will not all be non-denominational, capital I, Independent Christian Church folk. We will all simply be sons and daughters of the Most High God, and that will be more than enough to describe us. Speaking of divisions, let's do away with slavery and racism. And while we remember elephants and donkeys, they won't be of the political persuasion. For we will be led by the Lamb who was slain and yet was found standing in the throne room of God victoriously. And all of creation will be healed as well. We'll need no words to describe floods or famines, tornadoes or tsunamis, pollution or corruption, no more volcanic eruption, no more litter or loneliness, frustration or fear. There will be no more greenhouse gas emissions, waste or landfills, no global warming, global cooling or controversy over which or is or is not happening. No crab grass or crabby attitudes, bag worms or bag ladies, and the one time we will use the word extinct is to describe what happened to extinction itself. No more splinters, or slivers, scams or scandals, world wars and worship wars. Gone will be narcissism and pessimism, schizophrenic, paranoid and codependent. No more rage or mood swings or drive-by shootings. No more war or terrorism, uh, rage or violence, bitterness or divisiveness, hostage situations or school shootings, and smart bombs and smart Alex will both be a thing of the past. Broken is a word that we will need no more. No more broken arms, broken legs, broken levees, broken homes, broken hearts, and broken promises. No more poverty or homelessness, and the only time you'll hear the word hungry is when it is used to describe people's desire for more of God. Fear and afraid will both be words soon forgotten, along with rape and pornography, orphan and unwanted child, abuse and neglect, hanging chad or deadbeat dad, user and abuser, genocide and holocaust, torture and affliction, prison and starvation. Finally, we can say goodbye to what has plagued us so long. Pride and lust, gluttony and greed, sloth and envy, lying and despair, ego and oppression. And last but not least are two words that have hurt us more than anything else. Death and curse. With the Apostle Paul, we will finally be able to proclaim, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And we can sing along with the book of Revelation when it boldly proclaims, there will be no more curse. But for all the words that we have lost, we will have to come up with ten times as many words that are all synonyms for beauty. Because our current language will simply not have enough to describe the beauty of the new creation or the beauty that we will see in how each person treats one another or the beauty of healed relationships. And we'll have to come up with millions 
of words simply to describe the beauty of our God. And he who was seated on the throne spoke, and he said, Look, behold, I am making all things new. The last thing we see about the groom is he is renewing all of creation, and he's starting with us. He's starting with the bride. Andrew Peterson wisely notes, God does not say, I am making all new things. He says, I am making all things new. Maybe you need to hear that today because you feel like your life should just be wadded up and thrown away and discarded. I am here to tell you that God has not given up on you and will not give up on you. He is faithful and true, and he will bring redemption into your life, and he will turn your life into a life of beauty. You can wear white because of Jesus Christ. The passage concludes, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, and for the murderous, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the sorcerers, excuse me, idolaters and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so I ask you, church, today, will you look to the groom? Will you look to the one who has dressed you in white? Will you look to the one who is faithful and true, the one who will dwell with you, the one who will give us that resurrection reality, the one who is renewing all of creation starting with you? Will you look to the groom? Because there is a look of delight on his face because of his great covenant love for you. Towards the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Gandalf, the prophet figure, descends into the pit of Moriah and dies. Yet later he responds, he reappears dressed in white, to which Sam responds, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happening to the world? When Christ was resurrected from the dead, it was just the start of everything sad coming untrue. The resurrection reality is among us. He has started with us, church, and it is up for us to spread the beauty of Christ to a lost and suffering world where everything sad seems to be the only thing that is true. It is up for us to show that it is coming untrue through his love and through his grace and through his salvation. So church, will you look to Christ, the groom? Because the resurrection that God gave him, the resurrection that God gave to his son is the same resurrection that you and I will experience. 
where everything sad will finally be untrue. Look to the groom. He is the one hope we have. And the look on his face is amazing. Father, we trust in you knowing knowing that you are faithful and true. In a world full of lies and deception, we can look to you as the groom to know of your faithfulness and your goodness. God, we we just look forward to the day where we walk with you with no shame anymore. We look forward to the day when you renew and restore all of creation as it was originally supposed to be. God, thank you that you did not give up on us and decide to start over from scratch, but instead you decided to make us new through your son, Jesus. We look to you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you for going before us, for saving us from our sins, and for giving us the promise of the resurrection from the dead. Lord, we know that someday after we die, if you don't return first, that we will hear your voice and that somehow our breath will be filled with lungs, our lungs will be filled with breath once again, and we will be resurrected to this new reality. Until then, may we live as if it's already here. Amen.